You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, live on air from Copenhagen, Denmark, the 29th of uh, June. We've had a, a lot of central bank talk today, um, but a fairly quiet day on uh, markets in response to all of the talking. So um, to assess the uh, upcoming trends with us, I'm joined by uh, not only a friend of the show, uh, but also a uh, a friend of mine, Darius Dale, the founder of Forty Two Macro. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you, Darius, my friend? I'm well. I'm well, my friend. How you doing, brother? It's good to see you, man. Yeah, likewise. I, I actually wanted to start uh, with a quote that you also tweeted earlier today. Uh, and now I'm reading out aloud here. Um, it's from Jay Powell. We have the tools and resolve to return inflation to the 2% inflation target. The process is highly likely to involve some pain, but an even worse pain would be falling, uh, failing to achieve our objective. What do you make of that, uh, that quote? It's pretty direct. Yeah. It's it's very it's unusually direct, right? Central bankers are very rarely just sort of you know straightforward with their intentions, uh, particularly as it relates to withdrawing liquidity from markets. They're usually very straightforward when they're talking about adding liquidity. Um, what I take from this, and I want to paint a picture for everyone. Imagine we're at a, a I don't know, let's call it ten year old's birthday party. Uh, let's give him twelve. Twelve is a little bit more strength. We're at a twelve year old's birthday party in your backyard. You know, you're talking to your buddies out, and all the kids are sitting around a tree. And there's a 12 year old with aluminum baseball bat, uh, you know, swinging at a pinata. But except this 12 year old doesn't have a blindfold on. This 12 year old is going to whack and whack and whack that baseball bat <laughs> until the candy spills out. And that candy spilling out is inflation returning back to target. So be prepared for that uh, for Bumpy Road Ahead. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that picture, Darius. Um, I, I, I mean, uh, this is probably as crystal clear as it gets from a central yeah. bank that they want to see demand destruction. Uh, so let's get to the probably hottest topic of the moment, um, the risk of a recession. Because obviously when a central bank uh, goes aggressively ahead and tightens policy, there is a risk of a recession. Um, if we look at current uh, risk measures uh, of a recession, how big of a probability do you think there is for a recession over the next next say one two quarters? Yeah, so I, I'm going to go. So I've actually sent a, a, a series of charts on this, and I, I think it's mm. very important to unpack uh, at least the first few, uh, which is uh, the model implied probability. 
So I'm not a big believer in recreating the wheel. If, if, if I have, let me add another saying. I've been on the roll with sayings this year. Uh, smart people don't recreate the wheel. They create electric vehicles. And so what I mean by that is if something out there exists and it's really good and it's back tested and it back tests well, then use it. Don't don't waste a bunch of time trying to figure out and recreate it yourself. So and that's what I mean by this. this ref, these uh, recession probability models. One, uh, the blue line in that chart. Uh, oh, sorry. Recession watch model and polite probability. Brian is the, the chart. Um, the blue line in the top panel is the New York Fed's model that goes all the way back to the New York, uh, to the early 60s. And then the red line in the chart shows the um, the yield curve implied recession probability models. I blended those two together based on the 10-2 spread and the 10-3 uh, spread, 10-year, three-month spread. And right now, the former, the New York Fed model is at 4%, um, and it typically is somewhere around 27% on average uh, heading into recession. Again, average, <laughs> you've heard me also say average is the most dangerous word in finance. So be careful of that. But uh, understanding that we need some sort of guideline, guidepost, uh, the yield curve model is a little bit, a lot, lot closer to signaling recession over the next 12 months. Um, that's at 25%. And on average, in terms of the cycles that it's seen, it's only uh, been around since 1992. Uh, that average uh, sort of uh, reading prior to just the onset of recession is around 35%. So we're pretty close there. Yeah, uh, at least it, it 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 signals that there is a clear risk over the next 12 months. And I guess one of the areas of the economy that we need to watch closely uh, when it comes to the recession risk is the consumer. Uh, we know that the consumer is important for the U.S. economy. What do you make of the most recent trends that we've seen in consumer confidence and the um, embedded risk of a recession? Oh, yeah. So I heard you you, you were talking uh, yesterday on this very brilliantly, I might add. Um, you know, I just have a few couple things to follow up with because, you know, I thought you sort of hit the nail on the head as it relates to the what the decline in consumer confidence is signaling. Uh, so the two charts on that. So, Brian, the next chart's consumer confidence, recession watch consumer confidence. We just show, you know, one of the things you want to look at to gauge whether in your recession, because, you know, typically what happens, the NBR comes out after the fact and tells you a recession. You don't know your recession, generally speaking, until it's too late. Generally speaking, the markets are forward-looking, and they, 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 you know, they're they're obviously moving that direction into it. And so, very clearly, I think we're in one of these pre-recessionary periods. When you look at the breakdown in consumer confidence, particularly below, below its trailing three-year trend, historically, that's been a very clean-cut indicator uh, that you're either in or closely headed to recession. And as we can see from this most recent conference board print, which is actually a better indicator than the University of Michigan print for a variety of reasons, not the least of which it's tethered to the labor market, not inflation. That number at 99 is, is just collapsing below its trailing three uh, year trend of 110. So that's a that's a kind of a green light, if you will, from a refresh, recession signaling indicator. And then another sort of green light or bright red, if you want to think about it from the risk perspective, would be the next chart. Uh, where we show uh, consumer and expectations. Uh, so I'll take a second to explain this chart. It's a little bit more complicated. The top panel just shows um, consumer confidence, expectations relative to the present situation. As you can see, there's a pretty substantial sort of divide. The expectations index is all the way down at 66, whereas the present situation index is all the way up at you know 147, which feels like an economy growing 10% nominally, right? Well, the expectation is clearly that the economy is very much not going to be growing. 10% nominally. And when you look at that bottom panel, which just shows the point spread between those two indicators, you know, we're at minus, I want to say 81 or so on that on that indicator. That's a first percentile reading. And as you can see, just going back, scanning your eyes across to the left of the chart, you know, respecting the x-axis, historically, when you get to a deeply negative reading in this chart, as a first percentile reading would imply, uh, you are headed into recession, my friends. So the consumer thinks we're headed into recession. I'm not so sure that the average investor realizes that yet. 
No, I agree on on the latter, <laughs> at least. Um, I, I, I guess the textbook definition of a recession um, is two subsequent uh, quarters of negative quarter-on-quarter -quarter growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, we actually had revised numbers out of the first quarter um, uh, the, earlier today, um, showing minus 1.6 um, in the annualized decline in uh, in the first quarter GDP growth. So, I mean, we just need a negative quarter this quarter to call it a recession, don't we? <laughs> Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> See, there are two types of recessions. There's the technical recession, as you just highlighted, uh, which is two negative quarters of GDP. But there's also the actual recession that markets are, yeah. you know, you know, trying to snip out and price in, which is a statistically significant deviation to the downside in output. And you can measure output, obviously, through GDP, total employment, income, industrial production, you know, et cetera, et cetera, consumer spending, et cetera. And we have not seen anything of the sort. Um, obviously, the markets are starting to sniff that out. We certainly our models of 42 macro in terms of our leading indicators for, for growth are significant. Are, are, pointing to a statistically significant deviation to the downside in the growth rate, but whether we actually get a contraction in output, I think the jury's still out on that, but I certainly think we're moving in that direction um, in terms of uh, pricing in that risk and, and, and assessing that risk. If we look at uh, forward-looking uh, gauges um, of the recession risk, uh, the yield curve is is obviously uh, one of, of, of such gauges. Um, and um, I've noted how uh, we've seen a material implied probability of rate cuts being priced into uh, the um, outlook for 2023. Uh, what I would uh, like to debate with you is whether it is feasible at all to think of a pivot from the Federal Reserve in the direction of rate cuts uh, less than a year from the first rate hike. We've never seen that before, have we? Yeah, I mean, uh, so on, on, yes, we have. So on average, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm slap me in the face if this is wrong, but uh, someone I respect uh, cited this, I'm citing this statistic for someone I respect, uh, Francis Donald, who uh, does great work over at Manulife. Uh, you know, on average, the, 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 um, the first rate cut is usually eight months after the last rate hike. And this is data going back to uh, the 1970s. So the Fed usually is tightening, tightening, tightening until it's too late. Because again, the Fed's you know focus on inflation and employment lends it to looking at lagging indicators. Inflation and employment are both lagging indicators with respect to the GDP cycle, um, respect to the overall you know sort of business cycle. And so if the Fed is focused on trying to achieve its objectives through the lens of lagging indicators, the probability that it over tightens in every tightening cycle is actually quite elevated. Yeah, uh, but uh, I I referred to um, less than a year from the first rate hike, not the last rate hike. Oh, first rate hike. Sorry, that, sorry. That that that, yeah. that would at least be uh, something that new, be new, I guess. If yeah, that yeah, would that, be very new, uh, if they managed to 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 turn around that quickly. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I also wanted to pick your brain on a, a few developments from the uh, Central Bank Conference in Portugal uh, um, uh, taking place over the uh, course of this week because um, we had a panel debate between uh, Christine Lagarde from the ECB, Jay Powell from the Federal Reserve and Andrew Bailey from uh, Bank of England. What a panel, by the way. Um, but they, they all 
kind of agreed that um, they can still uh, take aim at the supply side issues uh, when they um, uh, try to explain away the current inflation pressures. What do you make of that kind of rhetoric still? Um, is it fair to, to claim that the supply side is the main caveat here? Uh, for other economies, yes. I mean, you know, we talk about we had August and Carson's there from Mexico, Andrew Bailey, England, obviously Christine, Madame Lagarde, ECB. You know, those economies did not stimulate demand in the way that the U.S. economy did. You know, we dumped multiple trillion, I want to say six, seven trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus into our economy, into our 18 trillion dollar economy um, in the matter of, you know, sort of 18 months. Um, that was obviously unprecedented in size, both in a nominal and real basis, but also in terms of, you know, relative to this sort of narrative, you know, that, you know, it's all supply. No, you, supply is set, you know, and I, I, no thing or two about economics, having studied them on, on the hallowed grounds of Prospect Street in New Haven. Um, those of you who know who that, where that is. Um, it, price is set at the intersection of supply and demand. You, you don't just get supply generating price. There needs to be a level of demand that exceeds supply. And what we've had is an inward shift in the supply curve that the Fed is now trying to perpetuate a similar shift uh, in the demand curve. Otherwise, you're going to continue to have elevated prices. So to me, that was one of the two things I, I really took away from the event, which is, you know, yes, supply matters, but ultimately you cannot have a sustained inflation bout, sustained bout of inflation without, uh, you know, supply having issues, you know, across, you know, whether it be physical commodities, et cetera. And then two, the second thing I'll take, I took away was didn't Powell just kind of seem exasperated? Like he almost <laughs> felt like it, he was at low energy. Maybe he was sick or something, but I think he's just tired of explaining and repeating himself. Guys, I'm going to tighten until inflation returns back to our target. And I think he's just as a, as a human being is just sick of trying to come up with a bunch of different clever ways to say it. You know, there's too many ways. Mm. We're all looking for tea leaves. And quite frankly, we need to stop drinking the tea. Yeah, I, I perfectly agree with you. He, he's been very direct lately. Um, so we know what he's after. Uh, it's uh, it's a bit trickier to um, to assess the Bank of England and the European Central Bank from that perspective. Uh, Bailey, for example, from Bank of England said today he, uh, that we should basically be prepared for inflation um, staying around for much longer in Europe than in the US. Uh, I find that a very interesting signal to send as a central bank. At least they're preparing us for, for inflation numbers running hot into yeah. the autumn as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, so on the inflation numbers running hot, obviously we get core PC tomorrow. Um, you know, the probability that we see an upside surprise is actually higher than the probability we see a downside surprise. Although generally speaking, these data points come in in line. So the highest probability is an inline statistic. But if you're a betting man, um, just given the breadth of inflation that we saw in the May CPI report, you know, when you look at things that are very clo closely correlated to core PCE, like median CPI accelerating to an all-time high on both a year-over-year and three-month um, annualized basis, sticky CPI accelerating to you know 30-year highs on both a uh, three-month annualized and year-over-year basis. Those two things have historically been very highly correlated with core PCE. So this expectation that core PCE is going to you know continue to decelerate year-over-year and, and have a very modest uptick month-over-month, month, I think that's kind of scary. I think it's scary. Mm. 
It is. Um, one of the things that's uh, extremely important for inflation is the housing market. Um, we know that uh, for the CPI index, uh, housing uh, makes up, is it uh, between um, 30 and 40 percent roughly, right, of the overall index. It's a bit less in the PCE index. But if you want inflation uh, back at target, you also need to contain the price pressures within the housing sector. What do you make of that particular sector, um, uh, given what we've heard from Jay Powell, etc.? That's the one thing that keeps me up at night as it relates to, am I short the market enough? Because um, we're, you know, we're going to short the market, and, you know, and, and so it's not the market. What is the market? Sorry about that. The net short, you know, equity, commodity, uh, uh, the crypto risk, um, net long bonds. The the issue I, I'm con- most concerned with as it relates to the inflation statistics are not, you know, the broadening out of inflation pressures through median CPI or the increasing stickiness of inflation, as I just highlighted, or even the on or, or even the ongoing explain you know sort of um, food and energy inflation. What concerns me most is the, re- the the massive acceleration we're observing right now in core services inflation. Core services inflation at seven point eight percent on a three month annualized basis, fastest rate we've seen since nineteen ninety. What's driving that acceleration? What's partially driving that acceleration is an ongoing acceleration in shelter inflation, which is being driven by owners equivalent rent which tends to sort of have this sort of, you know, multi-year tail to it whenever we see these big spikes in housing, or sorry, big spikes in home price appreciation. You know, we're currently tracking around 19, 20%, pick your index on home price appreciation, and OER somewhere around five. So we could be accelerating for another year or two just to catch up to those prices as it relates to how the BLS Mm. calculates OER. So that is really scary in the context of where we are in this tightening cycle. Exactly. Uh, and when you look a bit ahead, um, I uh, I tend to look at, at mortgage rates uh, as a leading indicator for the uh, nominal house price development uh, in many countries. Um, and uh, it is essentially also a very good leading indicator of the development in, uh, in nominal house prices in, in the US. When you look at mortgage rates, and um, you allow those to to lead the development in, in in house prices by roughly four quarters. You get a conclusion right now that house prices need to drop at least ten percent, in my view. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I quite frankly, I think they're probably going to drop ten percent over the coming year, 12, 18 months. That the issue with that is, as it's dropping ten percent, you could very easily still have OER climbing, you know, higher, um, just as a function again of yeah. uh, the technical dynamic with which the BLS measures that. Um, it takes a while for the, the house price dynamics to get priced into OER, which obviously creates a tail to shelter inflation, which is 33% of overall headline CPI. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to play a, a clip for you that relates a bit to uh, one of the headlines that we also received today of uh, of new uh, cuts within Tesla. Um, it's a debate between um, Francis Gannon and Maggie Lake um, on the um, current uh, assessment of the tech sector and the repercussions for the uh, labor market, etc. So let's play the clip and, and have a debate afterwards. The tech companies that are getting hit today, you know, higher rates um, are causing people to kind of refocus and pivot away from those long duration assets, which have done so well for a period of time. And, um, that's key to what I think is happening in the market and the shifts we're seeing in the market with those big tech names underperforming, um, and have been underperforming now for a period of time. And, and, you know, I think those areas of the market are going to be, you know, as we've been saying internally here, the ATM, if you will, the cash machine for the rest of the market. We have been investing in the same companies, you know, in a zero interest rate policy world or very low interest rate policy world for a long period of time. 
And so for us to talk about investing in small cap companies that have cash flow and earnings, um, you know, is kind of a, an odd thing when you could just buy Apple or Google or whatever you wanted to buy for the past 10 years. Now I think the market is shifting. So I think as rates move up, the, the focus of the market is changing. You can watch the entire interview with Francis Gannon if you are an Essential Plus or Pro subscriber to the Real Vision platform. But back to the topic on the tech companies, uh, I mean, they've taken a massive hit as a consequence of the repricing of interest rates um, and the firmer uh, Fed policy. Um, what do you make of that sector given what we heard from Jay Powell earlier today? Yeah, so I mean, one, it's it's the they've gotten hit from the sell factor side of the trade on this sort of rise in, in real interest rates. You know, one of the biggest, sharpest rises increase in real interest rates we've ever seen. If you look at the real 10-year yield, this is data going back to the late 70s, early 80s. We've, you know, this is a, the big, the biggest. I mean, we've seen a three sigma delta, you know, three, three, a Z score of three on a trailing three-year basis in terms of that, that statistic. You know, that's obviously going to have issues as it relates to the, you know, sell factor dispersion within the equity market, but it's obviously going to have a, a real uh, meaningful impact on the economy. Um, and, on, and on the economy, I think the, the, the fourth chart I sent you, Brian, um, just sort of talks about corporate profits to me because this is has been uh, we've been very vocal about this all year and, and I think it's becoming increasingly consensus but it certainly was not consensus when we started calling out the risk of a developing earnings recession um, you know if you look at sort of consensus earnings estimates you know I think we all can get the joke that you know Wall Street analysts have been you know for lack of a better word out to lunch as it relates to earnings estimates you know just looking at the S&P 500 for example at $228 a share, that's a new all-time high. We're still trending higher in next 12 months earnings expectations. Meanwhile, Google searches, you know, barring your chart from yesterday, Google searches for a recession are hitting an all-time high. So clearly so something's got to give in that in that dichotomy. But going back to this chart, Brian, this corporate profits chart, you know, historically speaking, in, in recession, you typically get a severe drawdown in corporate profits, 10, 20, 30, 40%. In corporate profits, and so you know, very rarely do you see corporate profits rise in recession. There have been a couple of occasions, but on the on balance, you're looking at about a eighty mm. percent probability of seeing a severe reduction in corporate profits. So, going back to this this comment that the the, the, the prior um, guest made, you know, this this earnings season, when you think about where the earnings and cash flows come from in this in the market and broadly in the economy, it is from those types of companies. So the reality is we can't have an earnings recession or pr pretty much an outright recession unless you're seeing some pain and degradation in those kind of what a quote unquote fortress, you know, balance sheet, you know, you know, high cash flow, high quality compounder type names. And so this might be the first time for guys in my generation, our age, you know, who've ever seen these companies really take a beating on the earnings front and really obviously take a serious significant beating on the on the on the um, equity price mm -hmm. front. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, I mean, currently we have, uh, I'd say, almost a massive divergence between corporate confidence and consumer confidence, mm -hmm. uh, probably driven by uh, solid margins, solid profits still, and um, negative real wage growth for uh, for the consumers, right? But 
I perfectly agree with you. The next step is to see a um, a draw a drawdown in the um, in the confidence in the corporate sector as well, um, basically driven by by falling uh, expectations for earnings as well. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I got five statistics for you that confirm that. Two on the labor yeah. side. Uh, well, they're all sort of on the labor side. So the quits rate at you know I want to say three point three percent. It's flirting with an all time high still. We still have, you know, very aggressive pace of job growth, whether you look at it on a nominal basis, 390,000 non-farm payrolls. You know, that's 200,000 faster than our trend rate of non-farm payrolls growth from 2015 to 2019. So we're obviously rocking and rolling from a labor market perspective. And people feel confident that they can, if they're not getting the wages that they want at their current job, then they're going to go elsewhere and find the wages that they want at a different job. Which brings me to my next point, which is if you look at S&P 500 operating margins, they're at 16% right now. You know, they're both cyclically and structurally elevated. I mean, 16% is about 200 basis points higher than any previous all-time high in that statistic, which is really damning in the context of unit labor cost inflation being at a 40-year high, this Q1 numbers, and uh, non-farm productivity uh, growth being at a 40-year low, again, Q1 numbers. If we stay anywhere near a 40-year high in unit labor cost inflation and a near 40-year low in productivity as we progress throughout the year, which is very likely, obviously, given how lagging wages tend to be, we will have an earnings recession. Yeah, I think you're perfectly right. Um, we have a great question from John on the Real Vision side in uh, relation to this debate. Um, he's asking you, Darius, um, for the next big catalyst um, to send stocks lower and whether you see any upside surprises on the horizon other than a potential resolution of the war in Europe. Yeah, no. So, I mean, look, this is... I, I, I made this comment earlier in the year about sort of how to risk manage this year. And, and we made the case very clearly, this is going to be different than what you're used to from a, from a, from a nasty, negative market regime perspective. You know, what's happening now, what we're so used to are things that sort of cause big, sharp declines in the market. COVID, um, you know, the Powell's comments in Q418, um, you know, sort of the sovereign debt crisis in 2011, you know, or China devaluation, you know, really in this post-crisis era, even going back to the crisis itself, there's been these sort of events that are causing problems, Lehman Brothers, et cetera, Bear Stones. Hmm. There is no singular event causing problems to market. Right now, what's causing problems to markets is the dang cycle. The liquidity cycle is in a downturn. The growth cycle is in a downturn. Inflation cycle is still stubbornly in an upturn. Um, you know, profit cycle is heading into a downturn, we believe. And so when you add all those things up, you, know, you look at what's the next major catalyst. The answer to the question is, it could be any catalyst. Any one of those hmm. things could be a problem for the market at any given time, just given that a lot of investors from a positioning standpoint continue to be um, very levered on one side of the boat. And that's the wrong side of the boat to be on uh, if you have a central bank head like Jay Powell, who's taking an aluminum bat to, to, the, to the valuation of the market. Yeah. Uh, and in regards to that aluminum bat, um, we have a question from from Leon um, on whether um, the U.S. fiscal situation basically limits the Fed's ability to raise interest rates. Uh, what do you make of that debate? Uh, well, it's the, the it's not that the U.S. fiscal situation. It's the economy's debt load, debt burden. Yeah. I mean, you look at you know our debt burden is if you, on a private non-financial sector basis, not even including the public sector, because I, I tend to think that the public sector will find a way to get its capitalization um, if it needs to, regulatory, force the Fed mm. to do things. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of things the government can do to get <laughs> capitalized. The problem is the private sector. There's a lot of things the private sector can do to try to get capitalized, but it may not. And that obviously causes growth to slow. So you look at um, private non-financial sector debt to GDP, that's somewhere around 160 percent. You know, that's up, you know, 6,000 basis points from where it was a few decades ago. 
you know, so that's yeah. a, that's a big that's a big move higher. And so this economy, this 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 is one of the reasons why interest rates both R star sorry R star terminal Fed funds, you know, uh, real interest rates, uh, you, uh, uh, sort of corporate borrowing costs, mortgage rates, all the all interest rates have made a series of higher highs and higher or sorry lower highs and lower lows really for an extended period of time. You know, going back forty years or so. Partially for two reasons: one, we beat inflation, the beat inflation dragon. Uh, we not we Paul Volcker did, um, and then number two, the debt has grown both um, from a public sector balance sheet and a private sector balance sheet perspective. So we will run into problems economically, which is goes back to the beginning of our conversation. It's why we're talking about recession yeah. in the first place. Exactly, uh, and in that regards, uh, we've uh, for some reason not touched upon commodities yet. Uh, we have a question from uh, from Bill. Um, in, in, in relation to the weakening that we've seen in the commodity space over the past, uh, say, two, three weeks. Um, could that be a signal that we could actually engineer a soft landing if we get um, almost a landslide in material prices, uh, energy prices, et cetera? Will that help central banks engineer a soft landing? Yes, because what it will do, it, was, it will truncate the, uh, the amount of time. Time is a real critical factor here amount of time that the Fed will you know, remain engaged in removing liquidity from financial markets and ultimately tightening the screws on the, the, the real economy, which is very financialized, by the way. You know, mm. I tweeted this a while back or during the Fed uh, FOMC, June FOMC, you know, 70% of, of, of private non-financial sector debt is not on bank balance sheet. It's securitized in the United States. And so what that means is changes in financial markets have a significant impact on changes in the economy. You know, if this was all on bank balance sheet, then, you know, you could just sort of huddle it out and wait it out. And, you know, senior loan officers can just sort of do their thing and keep it pushing. That doesn't work in financial markets. When when Citadel is trying to sell to 0.72, you're going to lose some points. That spread's going to widen if they need to get out of a trade. And that getting out of a trade has real real world implications from an, from an economic activity standpoint. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, uh, I think the final uh, thing we need to um, to debate tonight in terms of this recession risk is whether it is something that is already baked into equity prices. Um, I've heard that argument before uh, already this year that, well, if you look at the correlation between um, S&P 500 and ISM manufacturing, um, you already have a hint of a uh, sub 50 figure in the ISM manufacturing from equities already now. So what do you make of that debate? Is a very material slowdown already baked into markets? Not at all, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's for a couple of reasons. One, the this this concept that the market is cheap is 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 ludicrous, for lack of a better word, because we've not seen any earnings revisions yet. The market will only be cheap once the earnings revisions come and come in mass um, to account for a recession. Like if we're trying to price in a recession, you can't just have earnings going straight up and then therefore the market is cheap. That's not how the process works. Um, you know, there's a few things we look at to give us a guide on whether or not we've priced in enough of economic slowdown. The first would be uh, looking at the S&P 500's uh, next 12 months earnings yield, which is currently being flattered by by earnings, um, you know, by earnings uh, expectations. And so, you know, we've seen that thing right at um, uh, five, you know, right now it's at five, roughly around 5.8%. It can get up to around 7% in a very shallow recession. It can get up to about nine, 10% in a deep recession, which is what the um, the O2, sorry, the 2001 and then 2007 to 2009 recessions were. Um, so that's that's one. And then there's another statistic that we look at, which is the S&P 500's high beta, low beta ratio. So looking at the ratio between high beta stocks and low beta, ratio, low beta stocks um, as an index. And historically speaking, in the last three non-recessionary slowdowns that we've had in the economy, 
So you're talking about um, you know 2000, uh, 2010 to 2012. You had um, 20, sort of 15 to 2016, and then obviously 2018 to 2019. I'm not going to call COVID a recession. Um, you saw that statistic go down by 35, 40 percent. Right now, we're only tracking down at around you know 21, 22, 23 percent. So if this is not a recession, we need to, the market needs to basically go down by another half of what it's already done, uh, or double what it's already done, peak the trough. And if this is a recession, that statistic can go down by, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent. We've seen that before. So um, I think we're probably somewhere close to inning four to anywhere between inning four to six in market terms, probably closer to four than six. But who knows? Yeah, let's see. We can conclude with a quote from Jay Powell um, from earlier today as well, uh, stating that he hopes that um, growth will remain positive uh, as they bring inflation down with this firmer uh, Fed policy. Uh, Darius, it was a uh, massive pleasure to interview you again this afternoon. Thanks for joining. Always a pleasure, Andreas, man. It's great to see you, man. Likewise, um, we will be back again tomorrow. My colleague Ash Bennington will interview Tavi Costa tomorrow afternoon. Thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno. See you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.